chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, and I'm uh, reading from the New Living Translation version. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, the crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, he wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no man split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. He told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Well, lovely to see you this morning, friends. Welcome. There were some interesting notices there, weren't there? Now discover what goes on in the office when generally I'm not there. I think I went in for about 30 seconds and saw myself in the background, but uh, now discover what the staff get up to. Um, uh, This morning's passage is one of those that needs um, careful consideration. And so uh, it would be helpful probably if you had a Bible with you. So if you haven't got one, nip to the back, pick one up off the shelf there, back right hand corner. There are some of those passages in scripture, aren't there, that are harder to understand, uh, some that can seem quite um, uh, condemnatory in nature. Uh, There are some that challenge uh, what's going on inside of our own lives. Uh, Before we get to this morning's passage, let me just read to you another of those lovely passages which sometimes you read and you think, well, that's an interesting passage. Uh, This is, um, uh, wrong page, this is from um, Judges chapter 3. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord, raised, uh, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to, the right, to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute uh, money to Eglon, who was very fat. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped him carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants to be quiet and he sent them out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in the cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand 
pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger was so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. Sir Ehud did not pull out the dagger and the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the door to the room and escaped down the latrine. There's another of those passages. You think, well, that's interesting, isn't it? What's being left-handed got to do with anything? What's your weight concerned with anything? But there you go. There, there are difficult passages in Scripture. I'd give you that for nothing. There are difficult passages in Scripture. Um, if you haven't read some of the um, uh, Old Testament, you're missing out on some real treats. But this morning's passage is all about marriage and marriage and divorce. And um, uh, I want to uh, just spend a little bit of time on this this morning because for some people, the words of Jesus can come across as words of condemnation rather than words of hope. Though This is one of those subjects that can cause uh, very real pain in people's lives and things to be stirred and I want to I guess just begin by acknowledging that at the start Um, uh, for some who are living with the pain of a very difficult marriage his words can seem to close a potential escape hatch for us for those who've been divorced and are now remarried his words can seem to condemn us Some of you may have a different kind of pain. Perhaps you've been a victim of a frivolous divorce. Uh, You didn't abuse your spouse or cheat on them. They simply found someone younger and prettier or fitter and stronger. And so you're traded in for a newer model. Some of us may be children of divorce. And uh, we know that statistically, we're far more likely to go through divorce ourselves than the children of lasting marriages. Jesus actually wants to spare us that pain by teaching us how to live in accordance with God's original intention for us. Uh, We need to try to find a way to hear this text today as a word of life and grace, not as a word of condemnation. So let's take a little closer look at it together. Before we look at the chapter and verse, let me just uh, uh, ask a question. Whose marriage is in view in this passage? What's Jesus addressing? Uh, Why has it been raised in this way? And why does he answer the question in this way? Uh, In Tom Wright's book, Mark for Today, I found this very helpful story. He says this, in Britain... During the early 1990s, Tom Wright, Bishop Tom Wright is a, a theologian, a, bishop, a former Bishop of Durham, a prolific writer, commentator on uh, the church across the nation, um, uh, someone who's really worth uh, reading and listening to. He says this, um, in, in Britain during the 19, early 1990s, from time to time a journalist would telephone a bishop or theologian to ask about divorce. It happened to me once. But of course the journalists weren't wanting to write a piece about the church's attitude to divorce in general. They were wanting to write about Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Once it became clear that their marriage was in real trouble, the journalists 
never left it alone for a minute. Anyone trying to pronounce on the broader question of divorce would at once be seized upon. Are you then saying that Prince Charles dot dot dot? So there's a, there's a similar thing happening here in this uh, passage. And I'm going to try and draw that out for us. The apparent question is not the real question. Let me just point you to some clues. Verse 2 says this, Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? They came to test him or trap him. Usually that phrase is used when Jesus' enemies are trying to get him in trouble with the authorities because of what he might say. It's the first clue. Second is this, verse 12 of the reading says this, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. Jewish law would not allow a woman to divorce anybody. Full stop. Now, I know every woman in this place has got their hackles raised at that moment and thinking, that is just so unfair. We agree. All the men in the church agree with you. But then, that's just how it was. The women had literally no rights. So women were not allowed to divorce. So the question is, why would Jesus even allude to it here? Well, here we go. Here's why. Verse 1. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea into the area east of the Jordan River. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Why, does, uh, why, is it, why is this area important? This is why this area is important. This is where John the Baptist was. This is where John the Baptist worked. This is where John the Baptist started calling the people back to God. This is where John the Baptist said, said come and renew your relationship uh, with God. And if you're a member, John the Baptist got into trouble uh, because, his, because of his comments about the adulterous marriage of King Herod to Herodias. Do you remember that? So this is quite important, this. Uh, Antipas and uh, 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 King, the King Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias. Both Herod and Herodias had been married before. Herodias to Herod's own brother. Uh, but they'd met and become infatuated with one another. And so Herodias, she had left her husband and used provisions in Roman law to divorce him. So she had divorced her husband. In Jewish law, you couldn't do that. Anybody in the Jewish community was not allowed to divorce. Uh, the woman was not allowed to divorce her husband. So Herod had also divorced his wife and the two had married each other. This was an enormous issue in Jesus' time. Strict Jewish laws said that Herod could not possibly be God's anointed king because he had flouted God's law in this way. So this is a deadly test that they're putting before Jesus because if he comments on this in this region, he's commenting and condemning other people who've gone through this way before. A negative comment would not only be a criticism of the king, but also interpreted as an act of treason, uh, a pronouncement that Herod was not fit to be king and could cause all sorts of problems in uh, the community. 
And that's the context for Jesus' remarks. He isn't being asked whether a woman who is the victim of repeated abuse should stay in her marriage, or whether a man whose wife has committed adultery against him over and over again should keep on giving her more chances. Rather, he's referring to two people who have divorced their spouses in a, for no other reason other than they got a better offer. There's, there's no, they didn't work at their relationship, they, they chose to trade it in for a new one uh, for, uh, because of infatuation. So let's go back to ask the question, well, what is marriage? The Pharisees may be testing Jesus, but he turns around and tests them back. He says to them this, doesn't he? He says, what did Moses say about marriage? Verse three, Jesus answered them, what did Moses uh, say about this question, about, the, about uh, law, the law and divorce? And they come back, they said, well, he, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man could give his wife a written divorce and send her away. Uh, the verse they're referring to, it's quite complicated today, isn't it? The reverse they're referring to is Deuteronomy 24, uh, verses 1 to 4. It's a fairly obscure text, which basically says, if a man divorces his wife because he finds something unclean about her, and if she then marries someone else, and he divorces her as well, the first husband is not allowed to remarry her. Why does it say that? I've got absolutely no idea. Any of you got any idea? No idea at all. But it says that. So, okay, one day we might discover why it says that. One day we might be bothered at all, whether we know or not. But I've got no idea. However, Jesus' point is this. It's the wrong answer to the question about what Moses commanded about marriage. Uh, that text was a permission, not a command. The only command Moses ever gave on the subject is in the book of Genesis, and Jesus quotes it. Jesus says he wrote this command only as a concession to your hard hearts, but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. In Jesus' view, these verses record God's original plan for marriage. What is that plan? This is God's plan. First, that it's monogamous. Despite later Old Testament stories about uh, polygamy, Jesus is clear Genesis is clear that God's original intent was for one man and one woman to form a marriage. That was God's original intent. We may have gone wrong there, but that was God's intention. Secondly, it's their primary commitment. They're to leave their parents, leave their father and their mother, and join together with each other, which means that their first loyalty from now on will be the new family that they are creating. And that new family is husband and wife. Children are additions to that family, they don't create the family. The family, is, the family unit is the joining together of the husband and wife. 
Thirdly, it's sacramental, by which I mean that the physical action of the joining of their bodies in sexual union is a symbol of a deeper joining of their lives as one flesh. That's why, as Christians, we're against casual sex, because uh, it, it takes something that is so special, uh, something sacramental, and it abuses it. It takes something that does something not just physical, but psychologically and emotionally. It takes something that takes our whole lives, and it just randomly throws it around. But rather, we realize the depth of commitment that happens when there's physical intimacy between two people. And fourthly, it's permanent. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Uh, yesterday, um, uh, Lindsay and I were down in uh, Eastbourne speaking, and a girl came up to us, lovely girl, who we have prayed for for many years. And she, we've been praying for them to have children, actually. And she, um, a lovely husband, and they, they were a great young couple. And uh, finally, after, I don't know how many years, must have been about eight years, they had this child. And uh, two years after having the child, he left her. He found someone younger. And I guess prettier, I don't know, I've not seen her. It's a lovely, lovely guy. And she came up, and uh, she came up to me and gave me a hug. And uh, her tears started to flow, and I said, so, Denise, what happened? She said, I've got no idea. I've got no idea. She said, for years, we worked together, we planned together, we dreamt together. She said, and now our lives are torn apart, and we don't even speak. They went through so much. When you join two people together, you, they're together for life. It's not just some legal contract that can be revoked by a good, a good lawyer. It's a deep, mystical, sacramental union. That's why marriage breakup is so painful. The two have become one. The breakup doesn't uh, produce, it doesn't leave two people, it leaves two halves. Two halves very damaged by what's been broken. Two halves that take with them the damage of that relationship potentially into the next relationship, which is why statistically the next relationship is far more likely to break up. And so it goes on. Um, uh, uh, statistics show us. So that's God's original uh, uh, intention. I don't know if you've ever, um, I don't know if you've ever been like me, driving through London, not Ealing obviously, but through London itself, and uh, you're, there's lots of traffic and you're trying to find your way through. Have you ever done that and you think, I have got no idea where I am. I can't work out. The buildings are tall, too tall. I can just see this little road in front of me. I don't know if I should go right or left. I don't know if I'm facing north or south, east or west. I don't know where I am. You ever done that? I've done it lots of times. Okay, this is what Jesus is doing here. He's taking from the, the minutiae of life that they're looking on, and he's saying, let me just lift you up and give you a, a helicopter view of London. Let me just show you where you can go and how it should work. Let me just give you the big picture. Because I think if we get the big picture, we go, oh, that's where we are, and that's where we need to get to, and it's not difficult. But when we're in the detail, 
we can be completely swamped by the tall buildings around us and by the arguments of others that are around us. So what about divorce? Where does that fit into this plan? I think that divorce is acknowledging that we're not perfect. That we're working toward heaven rather than living there now. God gives us a rescue plan when things go wrong because of, and he says it in here, because of our hardness of heart. It it was a, a recognition that because of human brokenness, God's ideal won't always be achieved. In some cases, the situation causes so much harm that the disillusion of the marriage is better than, is the only solution. But still, disillusion was not in God's plan. God's plan was a permanent commitment and lifelong faithfulness. Uh, That's what God wanted us to see. Jesus' uh, words here, are Jesus' words here a total ban on, on divorce and remarriage? Some Christians say they are. I personally have my doubts for a couple of reasons. One, have we seen the original context seems to have in mind a particular type of marriage, divorce and remarriage. That that was exemplified in the actions of Herod and Herodias. It's a situation where a husband or wife falls in love with someone else and divorces his or her partner for no other reason than than to be free to marry the object of, of his or her infatuation. Uh, two, the other Gospels record a qualification here. Matthew 19, in this, uh, describing the same thing, the question the Pharisees ask him there is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause or for any reason? And Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another woman uh, commits adultery. Unchastity here refers to sexual immorality. Now, even the strictest of the Pharisees allowed for divorce and remarriage in cases of adultery. And apparently, according to Matthew, Jesus did too. And I suspect he would have allowed for it in cases of abuse as well. What about us? How do we apply this passage to our lives? First, the passage is teaching us that the sexual union we long for and the psychological and social union that we long for are best achieved in a lifelong, faithful, monogamous relationship with one person. Never be deceived if at times that goes through storms. If at times it doesn't feel the most exciting relationship on the planet of the earth. Everybody who here is married will have gone through difficult times. You'll all go through tensions. There will be arguments. But, but those who stay with it, like a good red wine, will get richer and deeper and fuller over life. To throw it away and choose another younger one, you will just get a tinny taste. We need something that is rich 
and meaningful. And it is only found and only produced through the process of the maturing of it. And the maturing of it means that two separate people coming together to be one have to work at that. Never be deceived by anything else that anybody else might present to you. Secondly, this passage shows us that marriage is a way of discipleship. I have to get Jesus in here somewhere. It's a way of discipleship. I think this section, you remember last week we were talking? This is where Mark's gospel has changed gear. Do you remember I said this last week? Mark's gospel changes gear at chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He talks about his death. And the whole rest of Mark's gospel, Jesus begins to talk about denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. He's saying this is what it means. To, to, it actually means lay down your life for me. And if you want true discipleship, true discipleship is about laying down our lives for others. That's what it means. We have to die to our own preferences and desires. And marriage requires enormous quantities of self-denial. It is, it is the relationship where we learn to serve our spouses, to lay down our own preferences and desires, and in so doing become more like Jesus. I think that possibly marriage is not just about our happiness, but also about our holiness. It's in there that we discover what it means to put others first the whole time. Thirdly, this passage challenges us to rule out frivolous divorce as an option for us. In the Bible, marriage is based on service and action, not on feelings. Someone sadly said to me the other day, I was talking to them, they've gone through painful uh, separation at the moment and we were trying to help them and, and uh, uh, they just, just said, you know, marriage isn't just about feelings, it's about a lifelong commitment, it's about marriage. And the husband said to his wife, they, they separate, said, that's just the church talking. It's not, you know. It's not just the church talking. It's what makes, actually, for happiness. It's what makes for things to work lifelong. It's, it's what Jesus taught. Jesus went through the cross. You know, he went through pain. He went through separation. He went through abandonment. He went through all sorts of things. What for? Ultimately, that we would achieve something greater and better. Every marriage has the opportunity to do that. In many cases where a marriage can feel hopeless, it really isn't. It just needs help. And all of us are able to do that. All of us are able to help one another. In some cases, as we see in Scripture, does seem to allow for divorce. Jesus specifically names the grounds of adultery in Matthew 19. That's not a frivolous divorce. Um, it's not, not one where someone simply says, I'll trade in my partner for a newer model. Rather, there are serious situations in which the marriage has been broken by unfaithfulness or violence or something similar. What about those who are on second marriages and who come... Uh, to the, came to them by way of divorce. I think it's important for us to remember the gospel, which tells us that God starts with us where we are, 
not where he wished we were. He starts with us wherever we are, not where we wished, he wished we were. So our call is to strive to make what Jesus says about marriage here a reality in our own lives. To live that committed, lifelong, one flesh union with our spouse in a way of Christian, faithful Christian discipleship. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9 to 12, a passage I often use at weddings, says this. Two are better than one, for they have good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift the other up. But woe to the one who is alone and falls and does not have another to help. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though one might prevail against another, two will withstand one. A threefold cord is not easily broken. And to me it's clear that this threefold cord refers to the help of God. Every marriage needs the help of God in it. When Jesus went to, uh, we think it's John's wedding and Cana of Galilee, they'd run out of wine, hadn't they? And uh, a miracle needed to happen. And the miracle happened because Jesus was there. And the miracle will happen in every marriage relationship if we invite Jesus in. If we invite him to participate in our relationships, in who we are. So let's not be afraid to call on God for help. God has a huge stake in the success of your marriage. Furthermore, Jesus is able to heal our hard-heartedness and to give us the strength to serve one another in his name. So for those of us who are married, let's live our marriages in God's sight. Let's uh, call on God for his help and let's strive towards God's best for us. And let's look forward to the day when all of our brokenness is healed in the kingdom of God together. Is that okay? Okay. Tell the person next to you what you thought of that now. Just be honest. Tell the person next to you. Okay. I'm going to um, call us back together. I'm going to call us back together. This is what I'd like to do. This is what I'd like to do now. I'd like us to take just a little bit of time. I'd like us to... um, All of us want to pray for strength in marriages it's really important Uh, if you're not married it brings sadness I think to your own life if you see another marriage break up we all want to see marriages made strong but all of us are involved in relationships as well There there may be hope for a marriage and maybe you've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend at the moment Um, it may be that you've been hurt in a marriage Uh, it may be that you're now a single mum, like uh, my friend yesterday. Um, It could be all sorts of things. And um, I think God wants to come and help us in our relationships. So what I'd like to do is I'd I'd like to just spend a few minutes praying. If you are here with your husband or wife, I'm going to ask you to hold their hand if you're near enough. And I'd like us to, I, I would like to pray for you in your marriage that you would know God's strength and grace even today and that we would 
uh, together journey into that place of that lifelong commitment. Maybe you haven't got your partner here. Maybe you've got children who are married or grandchildren who are married. In this moment, you can pray for them. But let's pray for the strength and health of marriages, um, of those that we know and of our own marriages. Just for a moment, is that all right? And then we're going to pray for other relationships. So why don't we just bow our heads where we are.